Welcome back to Crazy Fan Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So, friends, welcome back. We are starting a, or we well, started last week, I suppose, this new series for Lent, Stations of the Cross. And so, as we mentioned in our last episode, there are a couple different versions of this out there, especially amongst our Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, but we are going to focus being the good Protestants that we are and knowing our scripture more so than knowing our extra biblical content. We're going to stick with the scriptural form of these stations. And in this episode, we want to focus on the first three, which unlike the traditional stations, all start on Thursday, on Monday, Thursday. Uh, the traditional stations start exactly on Good Friday. These start a little bit earlier on Thursday and they are Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus betrayed by Judas and later arrested, and then Jesus condemned by the Sanhedrin. Um, so while, like like you said, this is used, these, these stations are used in individual piety as sort of reflective moments that people might spend time mm-hmm. on their own reflecting, praying, that kind of thing, and maybe with visual aids like a depiction or a visual or something like that, um, it, it, for our purposes here, we'll, we'll talk about maybe what each of these moments in the story of Jesus mean, both in the context of 2,000 years ago, what did it mean as Jesus was being mm-hmm. led to the cross, but also what do each of these moments mean for us in our practical life. And maybe we could invite folks who are joining on us in this journey as well to let these moments guide your own prayer life as well, um, uh, beyond in addition to listening here, but that that it's perfectly appropriate in your own life to reflect on these moments and pray individually, think about, reflect on, journal, whatever. Um, But we'll spend some time talking about what do we think each of these things is all about, right? Mm -hmm. So let's start in the garden. Um, This is my favorite part about Monday, Thursday. We all know the scene. You know, Jesus, they have finished the Passover supper. Um, They have gone to the garden. Jesus goes off like a stone's throw away from Peter, Paul, not Peter, Paul, and... Peter, James, and John. There we go. Um, Paul's not a disciple yet. <laughs> Mary's not, yeah, not Peter, Paul. Peter, James, and John. And, and he is praying. And while I love this part of the story, like I like you do, Sarah, when I picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I, I picture those stained glass windows <laughs> of Jesus looking very serene, just kind of kneeling next to that big, huge rock. With his hands folded on top of the rock and just looking up at God. like There's like a ray of moonlight. Yes. And it's just all peaceful and serene and lovely. And can I be honest? I really don't like those pictures. No. I mean, like, that's not what I like about it. Like, oh, I, 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 I figure you didn't. Like, the reason I like this moment is Jesus is freaked out. Jesus like, is real. He's scared. He doesn't want this next Thing to happen mm-hmm. and so he's going like and so many times when he seems to get overwhelmed or tired he goes off by himself and he prays and so that's what he's doing he's he's he tells his three disciples hey hang out here um i'm gonna go over here and pray i'll be right back and he goes and he prays and it seems to be very like i don't know i kind of loud and violent i kind of rem- like I kind of picture Martin Luther 
you know, with the sp- bottle of ink. Like, yes. Right, yes. at the devil and at God, and like, um, and I'm kind of envisioning Jesus doing the same thing, maybe even ripping up a few plants in his like <laughs> anguish mm-hmm. of like, hey, please take this cup from me, God. Take this cup. I don't want it, but I suppose if it's your will fine and then he goes back to his disciples and he's like oh my gosh they're asleep Mm -hmm. they can't even stay awake so he wakes them up and he's like can't you even stay awake for an hour with me and pray with me like because i think he's hoping that they will also be praying Mm -hmm. that this will pass Mm -hmm. from jesus but you know god's will etc etc and so he again goes off and continues to pray comes back gosh darn it they're asleep again those Mm -hmm. dang disciples and so you know but like i love this moment of Jesus being overwhelmed and scared and afraid and like maybe even angry and praying. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that this is a moment that shows the utter humanity of Jesus and that, that these things are not things to apologize for. That, mm-hmm. that to be upset mm-hmm. or tired or exhausted or vulnerable or angry are not sinful. And sometimes in our culture of niceness, there's this like, no, you cannot be any of those things or those are wrong. But no, there are times when expressing your anger is appropriate or not, or where it could be wrong, or if I'm angry about something selfish, that's kind of a jerk move. But that what Jesus goes through is fully human and nothing to be ashamed of, even though we sometimes do try and sanitize this and make it like Jesus was smiling the whole time from Monday, Thursday mm-hmm. through burial. Well, and... You, know, you talked about those times where Jesus, throughout his ministry, goes away and he prays by himself. And this is, again, one of those We don't usually get the behind the scenes of what that prayer looked like throughout the rest of the Gospels. It's just Jesus goes off to pray. Yeah. The disciples record that. You know, we, we have that in the Gospels. We don't know what he said to God in those times. So it could be that this is kind of his regular pattern of prayer. I don't know. I'm not. I'm mid-rashing things now. <laughs> I'm making extra biblical contact I, I, content here. Um, I'm fan-fictioning, if you want to use those terms. <laughs> but I, I do. I, I agree with both of you. Like the, the idea that Jesus shows his complete humanity here. You know, yes, he is fully God, but yet, he, you know, the, the human side of him is coming out and saying, if I can do anything else, God, to save these people, yeah. anything else that does not require my death, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let it be. It, it seems to me, too, that, like, whatever it means to say that Jesus is God and human at the same time, whatever 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 Jesus' divinity is, it doesn't negate or rule out the emotionality of mm-hmm. what, what Jesus' inner life is like. And I think that's important, because I, I don't mean to suggest that, like, somewhere in heaven God is moody or has, like, good moods or bad moods, but I, there was a time in Christian history when it was popular to say that God experienced no emotions of any kind. They called it the, do- the doctrine of the impassibility of God, that God couldn't, couldn't have feelings, God couldn't have emotions, because that suggests change, and God's not allowed to change because mm-hmm. that messed up all their sense. Like, there's, there's theological implications. If God can change, and therefore God can't have feelings, and God can't suffer because that's not allowed. That was basically mm-hmm. what God's not allowed to suffer. Um, and to me, it seems like the church made a mistake in that moment yeah. in medieval history, um, because number one, it doesn't do justice to the language of scripture itself where God is aggrieved or God is the one who's broken hearted or God mm-hmm. is the one who is regretful or whatever. And not to say that God is like 
capricious or unstable or like on a whim might go from happy to sad or have like a you know bad emotional episode but to say that god doesn't experience suffering or doesn't experience joy or god doesn't experience delight it's different somehow for god but it almost treats it like emotions are bad god is like a vulcan from star trek you know who is always about mm-hmm. logic mm-hmm. and i don't really think that any part of the scripture suggests that god's maybe above our kind of like god doesn't have like petty emotions like we have yeah. maybe but that it seems important to say that that the God we meet in the scriptures, certainly in Jesus, but even in the Hebrew scriptures too, knows joy and sorrow and heartbreak, and even in like those scary moments, regret at having made human beings, like before the Noah story. These are important things to say about God, and whatever they mean, it's not that God is uh, like a cold robot or something. Mm-hmm. And speaking of those emotions and mid-rashing, I often wonder in the next station, when Jesus is betrayed by Judas, you know, Judas being one of his 12 closest disciples, what that must have felt like in that moment. Mm. Like, because mm-hmm. throughout many of the synoptic gospels, we, we kind of get that foreshadowing that yeah. this is Judas, the one, you know, the one that's going to betray Jesus, that, you know, even now in Judas's heart, he knew that he was going to do this. Oh, or it was at this time that it was put in Judas's heart by the devil that he was going to do this. Um, you know, that Jesus seemed to be aware um, that Judas was the one that was going to betray him. But yet, at this moment, you know, he had been praying, hoping that this would pass from him. And here comes one of his closest friends and betrays him with a kiss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I can only imagine heartbreak at this moment. And that that maybe I like the way you described it. That the, the the gospels do give us the sense that Jesus is aware of where Judas is headed, but almost you get the sense that he's hoping it won't come to it. Like almost like when you like you really hope something doesn't happen, and then mm-hmm. when somebody lets you down, like yeah, this doesn't surprise me, but I'm disappointed. You know, it's like yeah. that. Like and you can you can sometimes predict. Oh, I bet so and so this is good. this is how someone's going to respond, and you're hoping they won't, and you hope something else happens, but nope, then they do. Yeah, yeah. It, it's weird almost I, it, to think about Jesus having hopes, but that's what's going on here is even in the prayer to the to the Father there in the in the garden, you let this cup pass away. It's sort of a I don't I don't want it to be this way, mm-hmm. but if it needs to be this way, it, it reminds me almost of um, uh, the the speech Doctor King gives the night before his assassination, where the, I may not get to the mountaintop with you. Like the, he's got this like awareness, and maybe there wasn't like. Uh, maybe he didn't have a very concrete, I'm going to be assassinated tomorrow kind of a thing, but like there was a constant awareness of the danger of the positions that he took and the mm-hmm. movement that he was a part of. And at the very least, Jesus seems to have been, have been well aware that the movement he was leading was eventually going to lead to this kind of conflict. Um, that in that sense, it, it, it could have been avoided had the empire done things differently had the religious leaders had done things differently maybe from a, a different vantage point there's a no this is how it must be but there's this awareness of jesus knows what he's doing will get him into trouble and he knows that from the beginning of his ministry when he you know picks up his ministry with john the baptist getting thrown in jail there's sort of a i know where this is headed um but there's it, it's not that he wants it it's not like in a sort of a uh self-destructive way he's he's looking to be killed but it's like if it needs if it, if it has to be this way i'll lay down my life for this but it's not like jesus is itching to die or self-destructive in that way half form thought about this mm-hmm. um and, and help me because it, it truly is like just something that kind of crossed my mind as we were talking is jesus accepting you know this betrayal mm-hmm. like he doesn't fight it he doesn't push judas away he says you know 
do what you've come here to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't, this is where it's half for because I, I don't know what to do with that and like what that means for us. Like if we would take these stations and use them mm-hmm. as, a, as a way of praying through the events of the late hours of um, Monday, Thursday into the early hours and, and the mid the afternoon of Good Friday. Like what do we do with the fact that Jesus kind of just, as Judas comes along and Jesus accepts his faith and saying that, okay, God, this is your will. This is what I want you, you know, this is what you want me to do. What do we do with the fact that when his betrayer comes along, he says he kind of welcomes him in a sense. Again, not in a sadistic way in in bringing this on, and you know, like you were saying, Steve, but just in the sense of he's just kind of turned himself over to what's going to happen. What does it mean to for what does it mean for Jesus to accept death, and what does it mean for us to accept? that he accepted that or what does it mean for us to even accept those other you know hard things in our lives that we don't want to accept this reminds me of um uh, a line of frederick beekner's that um talks about like that the worst that the something is like that the the worst that god's love can do to us is for us to have to bear what we've done to love so the, the, the whole line goes like this. Romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely, but Christ's love sees us with terrible clarity and sees us whole. Christ's love so wishes our joy that it is ruthless against everything in us that diminishes our joy. And this is the part that reminds me of that Judas moment. The worst sentence love can pass is that we behold the suffering which love has endured for our sake, and that is also our acquittal. The justice and mercy of the judge are ultimately one. Uh, and I love that notion that, like, there in the, the like, that Jesus accepts this moment. He doesn't, like, you know, like, fight back, or you're not going to betray me, Judas. I see you coming, I'm going to punch you. Like, the, Jesus has the option mm-hmm. and chooses not to, but, like, the, in a sense, the, the harshest thing that he can do at this moment is to say, I know what you're doing, and I'm letting this happen. Um, and that he, in a sense, forces Judas to own his choice, that mm-hmm. Judas doesn't get to say, well, I was forced, and, like, you're choosing this. Okay, I will bear this now, but you have to see what you are about to cause here, um, and that at the same time, this is for our collective acquittal. Um, there's something that's really powerful about that moment, I think. And the collective qu- acquittal, technically, includes Judas. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, I like, mean, there's there's a whole other can of worms we can open when it yeah, comes yeah, to yeah. Judas in, in the next, in the following chapters in the Gospels. Right, right, right. You know, but that acquittal includes Judas and yet that's something I don't believe because of his response to Christ's death he ever fully understands that um and it, I mean, it's interesting how, like, in church history, there have been a number of moments of our own Christian midrash or fan fiction about what that moment looks like. Like, mm-hmm. when Dante imagines hell, he's got Judas in the very, very worst part of hell being munched on forever by the devil in the circle of hell where I think it's him and Brutus, like, from uh-huh. Julius Caesar, and maybe one other person are getting munched on forever yeah. because they are the worst kind of betrayers of all. Um, and um, others have imagined that somehow... Uh, I, I think it may even be a Frederick Beekner moment where he imagines Jesus going into hell and well and taking Jesus by the hand. I mean, like, so like, it's interesting how mm-hmm. different Christians have like tried to mix. I don't know what to do at this moment, but it it feels so unresolved. Um, but it seems at the very least that Jesus, who has the opportunity to fight or to attack or to you know 
Nil lets it happen. Um, and in a sense, that also forces Judas to see that he is choosing this. This is He doesn't get to say, I, I'm, I'm a victim. I didn't mean, no, Judas, what you're about to do, you're choosing this. And I will live, you know, I will accept what are the consequences mm-hmm. of that, what comes from this, and I will bear the death that comes out of this. Um, but that Jesus is full aware and lets this happen in that regard. There's something powerful there, I think. Yeah. So should we move on to the story to station three yeah. and the Sanhedrin? Mm-hmm. Should we... Um, would, would one of you all who can probably explain this better explain what the Sanhedrin is? Uh, so I always get the various political religious groups of the Jewish culture confused. So, so help, like, but it's, it's help. a council, the, Yeah, right? this is sort of like a ruling council. Like these, these would have been people who... Again, like in in Judea and in Judaism at this point, you're ruled by the empire of the day who has the political power. You've got Herod who has his territory up in Galilee. You've got Pontius Pilate who is a political governor over uh, Judea and the southern part politically, but you've got this sort of, yeah, governing Mm -hmm. council. And I'm thinking 70 is the number uh, of people who are part of it. And, like, this would have been more like a religious or priestly kind of a council. So these would have been people who had sort of, like, you know, rabbinical weight, or I mean, they, like who would have been like religious teachers, uh, and therefore, as as they point out, they don't have civil authority to put anybody to death. That's why it's sort of one of the, the recurring plot points in this part of the story is, mm-hmm. even though th- what they think Jesus has done is worthy of death, they aren't permitted by the empire to put anybody to death. They don't have that kind of civil authority. Um, in in a way similar to maybe. Um, the faculty at a seminary have authority to decide who is accepted or not accepted as a student, but they don't have the authority to put you in jail if they don't like what you wrote. (laughs) Um, And because of that plot point, that's part of what necessitates they can't kill him in the traditional Mm -hmm. way of stoning him. That's why he will have to be put to death and put on trial with the Romans. Yeah, so they definitely condemn him, but I've also heard it said that this is like such a weird scene in the passion narrative because they're meeting in the middle of the night during Passover. Yeah. That this isn't a time that they would typically be meeting. There are so many illegal things about this trial Mm -hmm. that it's just outrageous. And, And you mentioned two of them, the fact that it's Passover and the fact that they're meeting at night. I mean, this is something that is supposed to be, you know, during the day it. You like, don't do anything like, during the, during Passover. Like right. the only thing you do during Passover is worship. Like this is not something that should be happening during this time. And at the same time, it seems like part of their inner logic is they are so concerned that things boil over at Passover time, the Romans will come and destroy their city. Mm-hmm. And like, like I, I, I don't, I don't mean to let anybody off the hook who shouldn't be on the hook. And like everybody, everybody in the story has their hands dirty. And for that matter, all of us human beings who are sinners. I mean, like we yeah. all, we're all complicit in this in that sense. But like, the, it seems there's a couple of moments in the Passion narrative where the the leaders say, the religious leaders say, like if we let this guy continue, there's going to be a riot. Mm-hmm. And if there's a riot, they're not just worried about their own cushy jobs. They're worried the Romans are brutal and ruthless and they will destroy our city. And they know their history. You know, we've been through this before. Mm-hmm. There were times when empires did come before and knock down our buildings and destroy our temples. And we've got this fragile piece that has only existed for a short amount of time where at least we can live our lives here. They don't want to see their city and their temple destroyed again. And 
sad news, 35 years later it will happen. There will be a revolt, Mm -hmm. and the Romans do come and burn the city to the ground, destroy it, knock down the temple in the year AD 70, and it never gets built. I mean, like, so their fears are well-founded, and though it's Jesus isn't the linchpin that starts it all, uh, somebody else's revolt is not not that much later. Mm -hmm. And it's like they are, they're aware it's a, it's a hotbed that, that like, any any spark could ignite a fire and could could start a riot. So like mm-hmm. it, I I get that like it's illegal. They're not supposed to be meeting now. It's the Passover. They should be thinking holy thoughts. But they're also aware Rome sees Passover as not just a, a celebration of God and the Red Sea, but as a freedom movement against oppressive pharaohs and Mm -hmm. Rome doesn't like the way it gets cast in that story so they know if like you add to that festival season somebody who gets seen as a new king that could easily spark up an uprising that Rome will have to be ruthless in putting down well and you also have all of Jerusalem and all of Israel coming together into the city of Jerusalem where like during the rest of the year you know Jerusalem say it has a population of 10,000. Right. Now you have a population of 100,000 people sure. that are there. I mean, the Jewish population has just multiplied sure. overnight. Sure. Yeah, you definitely seem to have a box of fireworks and it's a hot summer night exactly. and lots of people are mm-hmm. holding matches. Right, right, right. And they're just afraid of what's going to happen. Again, that, yep. that doesn't let them off the hook for like, this isn't mm-hmm. how process should be done. But they're, the, part of what seems to be their motivation is... Mm-hmm. They, they've made peace with, we're going to keep the empire, we can't do anything to stop the empire from being over us, we're not going to let this blow up into a riot that will end up getting our city destroyed. And perhaps because, you know, the Gospels talk about this tradition of letting someone go at mm. Passover, you know, this, like you said, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees together have been kind of plotting this way of getting Jesus arrested for some time now, in the hopes probably of taking this time and saying, okay, we've got him, and, you know, Pilate's got to let somebody go. Maybe we can convince Pilate to let go of somebody else, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, who who ends up doing some really terrible things that Jesus never did. But mm-hmm. in their eyes, Jesus calling himself God and calling God his father and all these things are worse than what um, Barabbas does by, you know, starting an insurgency. Well, and, like, that's interesting to me, too, that, like, as you, as you point out, the, the thing that upsets the Sanhedrin about Jesus is these messianic claims and these claims of divinity, the things that... Humans aren't allowed to do. If they only, you know, Jesus gets this, Jesus says things that only God can do. Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, is claiming like, and and when the the, the accusation they keep bringing is that he keeps that he said he would destroy this temple mm-hmm. and rise another one up in three days. Like that sounds like a threat of terrorism. Like in our ears, mm-hmm. like that's that's like saying I'll you know knock down the Washington Monument. That's the kind of thing yeah. that gets you arrested. And. Yet what what matters to them is that this is blasphemy against mm-hmm. you know the glory of God. Rome doesn't care about that. Rome hears this as your political threat, and we can't let there be other kings running around because we're the people in charge. So the, the 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 different kinds of accusations are interesting. That like the Sanhedrin is about blasphemy, and mm-hmm. then when they have to bring into Pilate later on, they don't bring that charge. They're like, well, you wouldn't care about the charge of blasphemy. You probably think you're a god too, Pilate. But no, uh, he, he said he's a king. Yeah, he said he's a king, and Caesar won't like that. So charge him <laughs> for that. Uh-huh. Uh, the, yeah, that, that's a part of the tension of what's going on here. Well, going back to, to talking about how this is an illegal trial in a lot of ways, one of the things that these kind of trials did require, besides being taking place in daylight and mm-hmm. not during the Passover, was you you know you have to have more than one witness. Mm-hmm. And while the varying gospel um, texts talk about the various witnesses and stuff, um, and there are more than one, you know, usually there is more than one witness. 
they can't get them to agree on anything. Mm-hmm. And so that's another one of those things that makes this, um, you know, the Sanhedrin are so determined to, to get this blasphemy charge, but they can't get any two witnesses to say that they've heard the same blasphemous words out of Jesus's mouth. Mm-hmm. And it, it, at the same at the same time, the the charge they keep coming back to is this: He said he would destroy the temple in three mm-hmm. days. And this follows on in the the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus does that cleansing of the temple moment, mm-hmm. right? And I, I know a number of scholars. I'm thinking like N.T. Wright in particular is one who says like Jesus knows this isn't simply a, a a moment of reform. That Jesus isn't just urgently, passionately calling for reform. It's a symbolic destruction of the temple and. N.T. Wright and others will say, like, because Jesus understands that he's the new meeting point between humans and God and that he is the new temple or something, but that that what Jesus does in the temple shuts it down for business that day and symbolically destroys the temple, That that's a provocative mm. act. And again, like, if, if somebody got loose in a place that was a, a place of national or religious significance for us, we'd get really, really upset if they started desecrating or knocking things over. Like, if you started knocking over the, you know, the gift shop at the Lincoln Memorial, people would arrest you, and they would mm-hmm. say, it's an attack against our very institutions. He's, this person is, is denigrating this very important sacred site. And they might say, well, I don't think you should be selling tchotchkes in the Lincoln Memorial. You know, like, you're missing the point of it, so I shut that down for business. But people would take it as you're Mm. disrespecting it, even if your intention is the opposite. But, like, what Jesus does is clearly provocative. And so even though, yeah, from the vantage point as Christians, we'd say, well, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He, he, the only thing they can say is he's claimed to be God, but he really is God, so it's okay. Like, if you're invested in the system in which all those memorials and monuments or the temple is, um, that's a part of, Attacking those things is going to be really, really provocative to you. So that takes us through Thursday and into the early morning hours of Friday. So join us next time. I'm going to steal your line here, Steve. (laughs) You always get to do this. But join us next time as we begin to look at the next three stations in which we, we switch from Thursday to Friday. And we look at some other people that Jesus encounters on his way to the cross. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.